Let's take up our Bibles at this time and turn to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 8. If you're visiting with us, we are taking up this morning uh, again our study in the book of Matthew after leaving for uh, quite a while. So this comes then in the context of the great faith of a centurion, Lord, you can, I send people here and people there and they do what I say and so this is your authority. Jesus says, I've seen great faith, maybe no greater faith in Israel. There's that speaking of the cost of what it is to, to follow Christ, the complete commitment in that way. That Jesus now in crossing the lake, as we'll read, has performed a great miracle. His disciples now having to wrestle with who this man is and, and what he's able to do. And now as they get off the boat, they are really met with even more of the same. And so we are then this morning as well. So let's hear these words. Matthew 8, beginning at verse 28. We pay special attention to the reading of God's word because it's what he's prepared for us today. But more importantly, it is the inerrant, inspired, infallible word of Almighty God. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, as you bring these words into our hearts this morning, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our spirit would be pleasing in your sight, that you would call sinners to repentance in the wonder of the promise of restoration, even in this text. And so we ask all of these things in the power of your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Congregation beloved of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, do we love people more than pigs? And now this is a question of which one of the deacons had said this morning, maybe we should be careful as we have families who are employed in the transport of said pigs. But, but it doesn't have anything to do with that this morning. And it's a ridiculous question if you think about it on the surface, even just saying it now, that, that does strike us a bit. It's an obvious answer, of course. Of course we love people more than pigs. But are you sure? You need to think about it. Because what if you substituted the word pigs for something else? Something else near to you or dear to you? Something that you labor for? Something that you're given to? What about then? Would you still say, of course? Because you see, the things that are on our hearts show forth clearly the things that we love. That Jesus says in his word, where your, where your love is or where your heart is, there your treasure will be also. You'll be given to that thing. 
that there was one who claimed to have loved God and followed him from his youth. And yet he's called by Christ to what? Go sell all that you have and then come and follow me. And he leaves crestfallen, disappointed. He walks away because he had many things. Do we love people more than fill in that blank? What do you love more than people? What do you love more than following Jesus? What are your pigs? Money or time or status? Do you love any of those things more than having a desire for people who need to be delivered to a right relationship with him? Those who need to be restored to a life of righteousness, independence, in the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and in the power of his Holy Spirit. You see, it's why Jesus draws near in this narrative. It's why he's drawn near to us, because he is the deliverer, the one who has come to save his people from their sins. He comes to set prisoners free, which is what these men are, enslaved to their sin, but now very specifically enslaved to this demon possession. And yet, isn't that the task we're given by Christ? To go forth in His Word and in His Spirit, to set captives free, to announce the year of the Lord's favor? You see, we're called to follow Him. To know that salvation and freedom can only be found in Him by grace alone, through faith alone. And so we are to be given to that work of restoration. And not just in a task week or on a mission trip, but that is the call of the followers of Christ. And that's a call that we're to take up even when there is great cost. Even if there might be the loss of all that we have or all that we hold dear. Because we love people more than things. And because we love Jesus more than anything. And so the, this morning we see this. Jesus draws near with clear purpose and power to restore persons from sinful and demonic powers. It is a great show of Christ's power to restore. And so we want to look at three things that you see in your bulletin and in your note page today. We consider the cry for restoration in verses 28 and 29, the change in restoration in verses 30 and thir through 32, and then the cost of restoration in verses 33 and 34. But that cry for restoration comes forth. And what is awesome in this text, and certainly striking, is that right away, the cry for restoration isn't just a Jewish one. It's not just about Israel here in this text. That's the location we find ourselves. It rings out from the Gentiles. Verse 28, and when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, he is in the region of the Gentiles in the Decapolis. But why does Matthew mention it? And certainly it's not just Matthew. Here is one of the three synoptics all recording this story, though Matthew in its shortest form. Well, the beauty of the Gospel of Matthew is always laying before us what's coming at the end. That at the beginning of Matthew, Jesus is the fulfillment of the genealogy. He is all that which was promised, but comes to the end in the Great Commission and says what? Go therefore and make disciples. So how does that progression work, and how are we to know this? How are we to do this? He lays the example before us. 
that the sword of man whom the winds and waves obey has not come simply to do great miracles and great wonders. He's come to save. He's come to restore. He's come to do that which is promised. And that need he has met with the moment he gets off the boat. Two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs. And it's here where the world begins to dismiss the word. What What are you talking about? I mean, even in the church, we don't talk about demon possession much today, and it certainly wasn't prevalent in the Old Testament, at least in the record that we have. But in the days of Jesus and his apostles, such possession showed the increase of evil in that time of opposition against Jesus and his work. That conflict would only continue to ramp up the nearer and nearer he came to the cross. And so this is the conflict that we're brought before. Mark and Luke, if you remember those accounts, only mention one man. There's the the focus on him and his response, but Matthew speaks of, of two. Two men possessed by unclean spirits coming out of an unclean place so fierce that no one could pass that way. So there's a reality, not only spiritual, but also physical. Here's the reality for a people who don't draw near because of who they are and what they are and what they do. These men were exceedingly violent in their possession. It's what demons do. They always bring suffering. They always seek the harm of those that they enter. And yet they're still people. We get so wrapped up, even in this text, in the demon possession part of it, that we stop seeing these are men. The people. Lashing out and striking out in need of deliverance and restoration in their brokenness. And so we look at that outward yet. I can't go that way. I can't be near to them. What am I? And what are they? but people who need Jesus Christ to draw near. And behold, verse 29, they cry out, the men cannot, but the demons do. And so we'll continue to see that through the New Testament. Acts 8, 7, for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. But here it is an audible voice, it is a clear voice, one that issues a challenge. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? And literally the text reads, what is to us and to you? It's a Hebraicism, stating that there was nothing in common with Jesus and these possessed men. Get away from us. This is our turf. These are our men. This is our place. We're opposites. So get away from here. And they say it in such a challenge and threat because they recognize Jesus right away for who he is. Here is the divine son of God. Here is the Messiah. His disciples were still trying to wrap their minds around that. Even after the boat ride. Even after the miracle work. Because nothing of his appearance made that known. 
But the demons give clear testimony of who Jesus is in his person and office. You are the Son of God. You are that Messiah. But they're also speaking it with another bit of that understanding. You also are the judge. It says in the account in Mark 1, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. They know what the incarnation means. They know what his future exaltation means. They know what his return will mean. But they're questioning, why here and why now? Have you come here to torment us before the time? You see, it's a bigger question than just that now. It's a question of what we are to believe about eschatology, about the last things. Because they know he's king already. They know he has authority now. That part of his identity doesn't need to be established by anything that he does. That's simply who he is. But what we are will come out in what we do. And so they're questioning his timing and his will. You're working over there. Why are you here? They're crying out in rebellion. You can have your people, but these are ours. They cry out in disrespect. No desire to see Jesus do anything that has been promised. Nor do they look with relish at what will come about at the last day. But there's another cry in this text, one that isn't so audible. In fact, it's not audible at all. Because that cry is the cry of these men. And they can't cry out. They have no power or strength in themselves to do that. Instead, the cry for restoration comes from their very lives of slavery and possession. Because those lives cry out in the need that sinners have to be saved. That their very lives speak that thing that they will not utter. That they have no power or understanding to utter. But as we look at those men and those women and those boys and those girls, that should be the cry that we hear. Here are those that need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and be changed by it. That's how we need to be able to look at each of them. That Jesus, you can restore those who are sinful and broken to yourself. You and you alone, not we, are able to deliver and restore and work salvation among the most hostile, vile, violent, and more those avoided and rejected by the world. That too often are avoided and rejected by those who sit in the pews of churches. He's willing to draw near to those he will restore who are like that, who are like us, and what we were apart from the grace of Christ. And he works that even knowing what that will cost. And so listen for it. 
the cry for salvation and restoration is always ringing out around us. So will we draw near or shy away? Will we love pigs more than people? Will we shy away because of the brokenness and violence of sin and Satan? Or will will we take every confidence in the Christ that we follow? And so he draws near to show forth the the change that he can work in that restoration. And that in the second point, look with me at verse 30. Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. So not only do we have a strange question at the beginning of this sermon, but now it seems like a very strange detail to add to the text. But it speaks to the moment. It speaks to the calm and the chill and the relative ease of that moment. A large number of pigs and pig herders who have no reason for concern. The pigs are feeding. They're certainly happy and everything is normal. Really speaks of the world, right? Continuing to go on, unconcerned about anything of Christ or his word or of a judgment to come. But the demons know how Jesus works restoration. In fact, in their questioning and in their threatening of Christ, they know that they'll be expelled. So now they ask for a change of venue. Give us another place to go. Verse 31, and the demons begged him saying, if you cast us out and And the inflection of that if here in the text is saying, you're going to do this. This is who you are, and we know it. Send us away into that herd of pigs. Not only do they know what he's going to do them, but he knows what he can work in these men that they are possessing. They know if Jesus does what Jesus does, this will not be a comfortable environment for us. Because these men will be restored and made new. Demons are given wholly to that which is sinful and polluted and broken. They want nothing to do with these men or with Jesus if he's going to change them. The pigs would be a more fitting place. The unclean with the unclean. For unclean spirits don't belong in those whom the Lord Jesus Christ works. But only Jesus can authorize that work. Only he can command it and demand it. That even in this text, he's reigning over all things. Nothing done apart from his will. So he said to them, verse 32, go. One word. Go. A simple command. But it speaks of Jesus' compassion. Not for the demons. But a compassion for these men. Again, that... That's the point. What are we looking for in terms of restoration? Yes, that spiritual reality and win, but these men are men. They need to be saved. This is Jesus' sole concern for those that he comes to. He has come to seek and save the lost, to proclaim peace by the way of his gospel. Here it is. He's come to establish the rule and reign of his kingdom. Willing to come and make a change in these men beyond anything anyone could imagine. A concern for them. Knowing what they are and who they are, but knowing what he will do for them. That this moment wasn't a random happenstance meeting. That's the wonder of our serving, right? 
the Lord brings certain people or certain events into our lives at just the right time in order to use us for the glory of his name. That's no different here. The moment was ordained by the Father that Jesus would have the opportunity to draw near and restore and give grace. That is what Jesus is always looking to do. But what about us? What about us when we get off the boat? When we get out of the car? When we go to our job? When we get back home? When we're walking about our neighborhood? Are we ready for those interactions? How would we have looked at that moment if we had gotten off that boat, were approached by men possessed by demon rebellion? Because the world looks at them and says what? Not worth it. Not worth it at all. Let's hide that. You know what? Just don't go down that road. Don't go near the tombs. They write these people off all the time. But maybe we too often do too. But I want to ask you again this morning, what were we before the Lord worked in us? What were we that the world would write off and say, not worth it? Not valuable, awful, despised, sinful. Do you remember what we heard in our assurance? For we ourselves were once foolish disobedient, deceived, slaves to various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. That was us. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, Christ off the boat appearing to these men, when He appears, He saved us, not because of us, Not because of works of righteousness we had done, but according to his own mercy, he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's what Jesus works. That's what he is ready to work. Drawing near to truly change in his rule over all people and over all things. And so we can trust Satan and his minions have no power over him. Jesus can work complete change, complete restoration, even among those that we wonder, are they even savable? That he could have looked at me and said he is unsavable. But he didn't. He didn't. Know this, he can. He can. And so take hope, Christian. When you look at the hurting, you look at those who are overcome by sin, you look at their lives and all the decisions that they make that only end in brokenness, and you're like, what are they doing? How how can they live that way? Don't they know better? No, they don't. As you look at your children who may be straying and rebelling, know this, that even in the worst of sinners, Christ can work restoration for his glory. Do we believe it?
he can completely free us from sin and Satan and self by grace through faith. It is our trust. For even here, the demons must obey him. So they came out and went into the pigs. But they don't stop being what they are. They're still Satan's minions, hell-bent on destruction and brokenness. Satan desires others to be judged as he knows he will be judged. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Total destruction. Senseless destruction. But it brings before us that wonderful, valuable truth in the change that is worth. Jesus shows us clearly people are more important. People are more important. Look what they've been released of by his work and grace. They're free. There could be no value placed on the gift and blessing they had received. Yet we're starting to turn numbers of how much would each of those pigs cost? What would have been lost by them? That we stop looking at the men. What has been gained by them? What blessing has come to them? What have they been brought before? in being released from their affliction. That which would have brought shame and isolation has been removed, brought before the person and work of Jesus Christ, restored to a right mind in Him. What a change. Do we believe He still works that way today? Do we believe He can bring the most vile offender to Himself? Do we see and long to see more of the inestimable value of people being delivered from sin and brokenness and fully restored? Because if not, I tell you this, we will keep loving pigs more than people. Our stuff and the things that we worship will be more more important than the salvation of souls. And if not, we'll fail to see what we were in the change that he worked in us. We say it in in our confession, right? He has set us free from the tyranny of the devil. And so we pray that he would work such change in our day, no matter the cost, no matter the loss to bring about it. Because indeed, even as Christ is there, there is a recognition of the great cost to bring about such a restoration and that in the last place. Because I still, even in reading this story, I want to imagine what it would have been like to be there. You see all this. You hear all this. How would you respond? Probably like verse 33. The herdsmen fled. Out. Let's go. They're afraid of what they've seen. They're afraid of the consequences. They're afraid of what a stranger a long way off means. In their fear, they returned to the nearby town and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And so they speak of the original scene, the landing of the boat, the meeting of this man and the demon-possessed men, the pigs feeding one moment and then hurdling themselves to their death in the sea in the destructive rage. They would have been looked at like they were crazy. Absolutely unbelievable. 
like some not-so-sharp kid telling a teacher that the dog ate their homework. This doesn't happen. But what brings the people out is not the story. It's the cost of it. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. Why? Because the loss of their pigs was significant. Loss of now and future income. And so they come to Jesus. They come to the one who's drawn near to them, who will save his people from their sins, who comes with healing in his wings, who comes to work the greatest of all restorations, restoring his chosen people to the Father, his presence there among the Gentiles, now saying, this is way bigger than just Israel. The servant of Isaiah 53 come to work restoration even among them. Pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds we are healed. Here he is. He's there. He is foreshadowing his work. He saves his people from their sins. He delivers them from their curse by taking it upon himself. It's there. The picture of the gospel is there. He has freed two men from slavery to the evil one that they may live in fellowship with him and with the Father through him. That's why Jesus came. It's what he came to do for me. It's what he came to do for you. But instead of taking our curse and placing it upon a bull or ram or lamb or herd of pigs, he takes all our sin and brokenness and curse upon himself to grant us freedom and liberty so that we would make him known for the glory of his name. They come out to meet the one who has worked restoration, who will work it at any cost, at a great cost. They see it. Here they are, men now in their right minds. But not everyone will be convinced. Not everybody wants to see it. Instead of rejoicing in the salvation of that moment, they dismiss it. They reject it. They fear it. They will not see it. They will not receive it. They will remain in their sin, in the love of hearts that have no room for Jesus and no desire to lose everything that they might gain everything. That in hearing what they hear and seeing what they see, there is now no cry from the town for salvation. Instead, when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. The demons ask Jesus to send them away. Now the people ask Jesus to go away. They beg because of their fear. They fear the destruction of other flocks. They fear his power that they could not understand. For we know that Christ, his words and actions can only be understood by the gift of faith. The deliverance should have mattered more. But it doesn't. It's the way of the world. In fact, as Keener writes, one should expect opposition for such priorities. 
because most people value property more than they value God's delivering activity. In fact, that's a part of the suffering of Christ. To these people, pigs were more important than people set free. (laughs) And we sit, and even in my study this week, I became very indignant. How could this be? How could anybody in their right mind, seeing what had happened and now this change in the... How could this be the response? How could this be true among those who claim to follow Christ today? How could their finances be more important than bringing people into the family of God by faith through His Word and Spirit? Why are we so bound up in concern with our return on investment? I don't want to take a loss for following Jesus. And so we give up on people or write them off rather than going to them and be willing to suffer the loss of all things that we might win some in the grace that God alone provides. Let's not add to the suffering of Christ. It says in Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That's what's happening here. But that's we. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken by God and afflicted. What about us? Yet these two men, in their right mind, at the feet of Jesus, would have esteemed him, would have loved him, would have followed him. Consider the gift that they had been blessed with. Consider the accounts in Mark and Luke. Now in his right mind, one of these men wants to walk with Jesus. Don't send me away. Let me be your disciple. And in being asked to stay, gives himself to making known what? In all of his life, making known this is what Jesus Christ has done. And yet we remain silent. Worried about our stuff more than the Savior. What are we doing? Christian, consider your life. Consider what you were before Jesus and all that he has done for you. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and mind. We're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That is what we were in need of the same kind of restoration. And Jesus promised to work that for us at the great cost of his blood and righteousness. He was willing to draw near to you. Willing to draw near to suffer the loss of all things. Never giving up on us. Never considering us beyond saving or beyond the effort. Willing to suffer the loss of all things. In his example, are we? Are we willing to draw near to sinners, even to suffer loss? 
to keep coming even though we know we'll be despised and rejected for it in the desire that they would be saved and restored to Christ. Do you continually remember what you've received at such a cost? But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So I ask you again, do we love people more than pigs? Are our hearts bound up in the mission of Christ? Do our hearts go out to the broken in this world longing, longing that they come to know Jesus? Then let's go forth in love to serve this Lord of our lives to tell others of the truth of what Jesus Christ has done for us and paid for us in drawing near to us. That we may cry out for the salvation and restoration of souls to the glory of his name. Amen. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and its call. And Father, on the surface, Lord, that word is not necessarily a heavy call. It's a song that, or a, a passage we've read in Sunday school and learned at Bible school, and Lord, we've read it, we read it in, in Mark and in Luke as well, but Father, the gravity of its call, not only to see and exalt the glory of Christ in His work and in His power, but to recognize, Father, the place of our hearts. And so, Lord, we have been freed from all of our sin and guilt set free from the tyranny of the devil, the same kind of freedom that these men at this moment now enjoy in the work of Christ. That, Father, they would leave that place telling all that they came into contact what had been done for them. So, Lord, open our mouths. First, open our hearts. Open our hearts to long for what you long for. Open our mouths to proclaim, Father, your will and your way, that way of salvation and your glory. Father, ready our feet to draw near to those that the world would reject and despise, those that would be cast off. Lord, remind us of what we were and what we are now in you. And let us count the cost, knowing what you were willing to give, yes, all things. And so, Lord, we ask, work in your people a great desire to follow you and to love people, those made in your image, in the proclamation of the gospel of your Son. And so, Lord, we pray that as we lay our lives before you living sacrifices, as we give ourselves to you and your mission on this earth to go and make disciples, Father, equip us for it. And so we thank you that as we give our gifts this morning for our general fund for the work of the church, Father, may that equipping continue to go forth. May it be heard by us, and more would you continue to bring us before the gospel of Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.